Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to FYI. This is Simon, one of ARC's genomics analysts focused on molecular diagnostics. This week, we're speaking with SC Moadi. After working within product development at Facebook, SC created Products That Count, one of the largest global networks of product managers spanning across numerous industries, including healthcare. She's taken this approach to venture capital where her firm, Mighty Capital, invests slightly smaller checks, but provides a very high level of hands-on guidance and product development experience and assistance. I think for me, a good place to start and something I'm really curious to learn more about with you is just, could you maybe talk through the original founding of products that count and how that shaped your path towards starting a venture capital firm? Yes, yes, absolutely. It's a very unique path, I will say. You know, I spent a dozen years building products and companies. I I worked for Nokia, I worked for Siebel Systems, Facebook, and then had my own companies at, at times as well. And I left Facebook after a few years there, which is also when I started angel investing. And I was invited to write a book, What Makes a Great Product. It was really tempting to do that. And as I was writing this book, I collected my own stories of building products and then collected my peers at the time, right, product leaders' stories, and realized that there wasn't a place for people to connect, product people. And so that's how Products That Count started, really. It was almost like a dinner series, if you want, not in my garage, but at my living room. And it grew from there to where it is today, which is one of the largest and definitely a very influential product acceleration platform. And one of the joys, and I know we're going to talk about that, has been to see the diversification of industries and geography, right? It used to be that product management was very much a Silicon Valley tech But now a third of our audience is outside Silicon Valley, a third of our audience is outside of technology, including in in life sciences. So that's been the products that count trajectory. In parallel to that, I mentioned I'm an angel investor, and so I learned the ropes of, of early stage investing. And products that count starts to bring me and my partners a lot of deal flow. And so much so that we see an opportunity to create really a new kind of venture capital firm, which is Mighty Capital. And when I say a new kind of venture capital firm, it's because if you're an investor yourself, you know that most venture capital investors, they bring you a lot of money, but not necessarily a lot of value around the money. And so what we say is we're going to do the opposite. We're not going to bring a lot of money. We're going to bring a smaller check, like half a million, maybe 0.5 to $1.5 million. That's our check size. 
but will bring a lot of value and particularly will bring products that count, right? The value of access to over 300,000 product managers, which is about 20% of all product managers out there. So that's really how Mighty Capital started. We raised our first fund really quickly. It was oversubscribed by more than 30%. We're now over three years into this. We just finished raising our second fund and it's also oversubscribed. We raised it during COVID, which is really interesting. (laughs) Lots of learnings there. But anyway, so our investment, we really follow the strengths of the products account network. We invest where we add the most value. And so today I, I mentioned this, you know, two third, one third. That's what we do. We invest two thirds in technology, one third in your know, life science and generally speaking, regulated industries, two thirds in Silicon Valley, one third in the US, but outside of Silicon Valley, and then two thirds at Series A stage and one third at Series B, like slightly earlier or slightly later than Series A, basically. Mm-hmm. And before we dive into Mighty Capital and Earnest, just for the folks that aren't familiar with maybe the core tenets of product management, like I know you mentioned Facebook and getting your start there and then broadening it up and trying to get rid of the siloization of that practice. But, you know, assuming product management happens, you know, within software and hardware and then life sciences, like we're talking about, what are some of the the common components that people should be aware of when bringing products to market? Yeah, so that's a really great question. You know, when I was writing my book, I was asking myself like, okay, there are so many different products out there. How do I describe what makes a great product? Because that's really the core question. And after literally like, you know, looking at my own experience, but also hundreds of interviews, it came down to something that sounds really simple, right? But it's very difficult to execute, right? Our technology products, like our technology is now an extension of ourselves. In fact, with COVID, I think maybe even we are an extension of technology because we're connecting through technology as opposed to, you know, using technology to augment ourselves. But anyways, so technology is an extension of ourselves. So when we think about a great technology product, we have to think about a great person. And I use in my book, the mind, body, spirit framework to describe that. So you're know, starting with that, the, the body, the body rule, we, we all want to look good. And so we expect also that our technology will be beautiful. And by beautiful, I don't mean pretty pictures. I mean, looking at actually the definition of beauty, that's something we could talk about for a long time. I did a lot of research on it, like what is beauty? But it's a combination of efficiency, which is very rational, and then a wow factor, which is more like emotional. Then the spirit role, like we all want to have meaningful lives. So we expect that our technology will also be very meaningful i.e. that it will be personalized. It will be personalized to services that, you know, only I can experience, only you can experience for yourself. But then at the same time, it's very personalized, but it also respects our privacy. And then lastly, the mind rule, we all want to learn, we all want to grow. Your listeners, they're here because they want to learn about you know, new topics, new people, new concepts. And so we expect that our technology will also learn and grow with us, right? And people, when you look at how people learn, some learn fast, some learn slow, it's a combination. So how does technology also learn sort of fast and slow, which in the life science space is really fascinating, right? Because you have regulation, which 
you know, kind of slows things down. So learning fast isn't necessarily as easy as with, a, you know, kind of other types of tech products. Right. No, that's actually, it's a good segue because when you were sort of lining out things like like beauty and efficiency, these are not typically words that at least I have associated historically with the healthcare system. You know, like you pointed out, there's a lot of infrastructure. Sometimes the incentives of payers and providers are, are seemingly at odds. And I know that there's a lot of change and I, I want to be able to talk about that. But you know, I think from your perspective, how do you think combining or working together, like you mentioned, with with products that count and the VC firm kind of going hand in hand and a lot of the different companies that you're meeting with being in the life science space, are they surprised at how much product management or, or that community is impacting the way they're thinking about their businesses? Some of them are. We were, when it first started, we were more surprised ourselves. You know, we, we were thinking we're mostly as a firm going to be investing in technology. And then we met with entrepreneurs like Charlie Silver from Mission Bio, who said, I absolutely want you as investors, even though if you know the company, they could take money from anyone. Like they are funded by Agilent, by Mayfield, a lot of other fantastic investors. Every time they raise money, it's like a few days, oversubscribed rounds. So it's definitely one of those, you know, rock star of a company. But they carved out an allocation for us. And when I asked Charlie, like, I'll take it, but but I want to know why, right? I want to understand what value you need from us. He said, I have extremely specific ideas for what I need. And we helped him source He's head of product, who's the former CEO of Sony Bioscience. And it's basically the one in five people or so in the world who has the experience, the contact, the lesson learned, the, you know, the business brain, the technology brain, the PhD type to create the offering that he's bringing to market. And so it started really with this hiring use case, help me find the needle in the haystack which is in, like I said, in regulated industries, a product manager is somebody who generally has a PhD and some, you know, bio something, then has spent years in business development roles for, you know, life science companies, whether it's at, you know, pharma or medical devices and so on and so forth. So has the go-to-market experience and then is patient enough that they can deal with, you know, red tape and regulation. So there are not a lot of people who are really at the top of their game in that field, and we have access to them. That's sort of the first, if you want, value add that Mighty Capital brings to the table. And then, you know, with companies, as we've, you know, continued to, to make investments, we now hear life science companies, like, for example, we made an investment in Siren Care a few months ago. Great company, phenomenal founding team. And the reason they brought us on their cap table, they said, well, you know, we're building a service that has a heavy consumer component, right? Everybody hear about the consumerization of life sciences. Well, what does that mean, right? So there's an unboxing experience to their product. There's a hardware and software component to their product experience. And basically it's like they're looking to recreate an Apple-like experience but they do that with having a network of mostly, you know, bio something PhDs, right? So they really want our product angle to help them get to the next level. Mm. So 
you know, all these companies, I don't want to overgeneralize them, but a lot of them, I think, are kind of firmly within the space of, of personalizing healthcare or transitioning it, at least this is my definition, from sort of a, a one-size-fits-all approach to something that's a little bit more crafted and unique and has those qualities, like you mentioned, the, the consumerism, the sort of the wow factor. So where did your interest in personalized medicine really take root? I know, you know, for many people, it's things like the Human Genome Project, but I'm trying to get a, a grip on where did that journey really start for you? Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, when I think about personalized medicine, it, you know, it really starts with the human genome. We're investors, for example, in this company, Fabric Genomics. They're like a perfect example of the kind of companies we think we're going to see many more of. They take the data from the human genome, package it with a data science algorithm, run some intelligence on it, and then sell that research to pharma companies to accelerate the development of new drugs and sell it to hospitals to accelerate diagnostics of patients. They say, based on you know, the genetic profile of this patient, and you know, similar other genetic profiles, we think that this treatment might be most appropriate and so on and so forth. So they basically use a data lake that's inside of us and run a bunch of computation on top of it and then make value-add recommendations that are highly personalized. And that is really something that we love because our background is to use another data set, the data lake, the mobile data lake, which is pretty much everything outside of us run a bunch of you know, intelligence on top of it, and then create services that are super value-add. One example of that being Facebook, right? If you run like a bunch of algorithm on top of mobile data that tells you where you are, what you're doing, who your friends are, you get a, a highly, highly personalized experience, which is your newsfeed, right? Your newsfeed is very different from my newsfeed, which is very different from anybody's newsfeed, the ultimate personalized experience. Well, running similar services on top of another data lake, like the genomics data lake. And, and when I say genomics, I mean genomics at large, right? It can be your genome, but it can be your dental footprint. It can be your iris, right? The, the eye footprint. And then deriving from that personalized value-add services. And we're, we're just scratching the surface of that. So that's where the interest lies. It's like, well, all that expertise can be applied to another data lake that's completely independent, right? Distinct data lakes. But the value-add services are probably even greater than what we've invented on top of the mobile data lake. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's been interesting, right? Because I think we've gone through a really transformative decade in the sense that, you know, let's say back at the early 2000s, when the completion of the Human Genome Project happened, there was you know, a lot of promise. And I think not necessarily hype, but there was a disconnect, I think, between the cost of certain things. Like to your point, you know, the, the cost of generating a human genome has come down from, you know, about 3 billion at the turn of the century to, you know, now under $1,000. So we've kind of gotten to the point where we can operationalize, as you say, you know, some of these genomics and, and how that relates to healthcare. What I'm wondering is, realizing and, and continuing to push forward from, you know, like you said, we're kind of at the beginning of this now, but let's imagine the rest of the 2020s. What are some things that you think need to happen in order to actually realize that dream? And maybe to kind of pick out a few different things that I've seen as like being really challenging, I think, for the U.S. healthcare system and abroad to overcome. 
are, you know, things like payer relations, how they're assessing value or how fractured and siloed our data is. You know, we've got these EMRs that are ostensibly not really talking to each other and things like that. So what are some bigger things that need to happen to get us there? Yeah, absolutely. Personally, I think looking at the opportunities is where innovation is going to come, right? Unifying, you know, communication between one database and, and another. There's probably like a million different services that will do that, like middle layers, middleware, data quality services, master data management, what, what have you. Tons of companies have been created around that. But there will not be like a, you know, a big unifier that will solve all, you know, a ring to room to rule them all. Like, I don't believe in that. So there's definitely pockets of, of opportunities there. Where I think opportunities will come up is more like big blue sky. So, you know, take an example. We were talking about that a little bit earlier. Chronic disease management versus, you know, our current healthcare system. Our current healthcare system was created after World War II when, you know, the two issues people had from a health perspective was they were veterans. So they had, you know, amputed legs or you know, they, they had like illnesses that had a beginning and an end and then pregnancy. Right. So beginning and end, not a chronic disease. And now 75 percent of healthcare costs, if not more, is dedicated to chronic diseases. And so we have a, a system that's meant to, to treat with a beginning and an end as opposed to prevent, which is an ongoing service. I think that solutions that help with chronic disease management, whether it's diabetes, addiction, things like that, there's going to be a ton of innovation there. And the more data you have, the more you can personalize the service and the more you can do that over time, which is a lot of where the value comes from. So that's where I see a lot of opportunities. Another thing that I think is going to be really important is how do you teach these services how to learn, right? This mind rule, like people learn fast, people learn slow. We expect technology to learn fast and slow. But in an, in, an industry that's hyper-regulated where when you experiment, you need to be careful, right? You're playing with people's lives. You can't really experiment the way that you experiment in the more mainstream technology industries, right? Like the experience of, what's the name of that company? The blood company. Oh, oh Theranos. Theranos, right? The example yeah, of Theranos yeah. is a perfect example of that, right? You can't experiment with people's lives. And so it comes down to when you experiment, where do you draw the line, right? Between the safe experimentation and the putting lives at risk experimentation and having the ability to draw that line will basically help these services build trust, build trust with their audience and with their customers, right? This is what I do. This is what I don't do. As opposed to, I'm going to solve all your problems and then, and then falling short of that and putting people's lives at risk. It's a really good point. And one of the things that I'm thinking about is you have this distinction between like real world evidence versus something being in the context of a clinical trial. And increasingly, I think the lines between those things have started to blur a little bit. So, you know, I focus mostly on, on diagnostics, right? So kind of the beginning of that value chain, whether it's for a chronic disease that you're managing over a long term or something more acute. I've always wondered 
you know, when it comes to earning public trust and, and the fact that, you know, I totally agree with you, it's really hard to experiment with something that has the gravity of, you know, potentially like a cancer diagnosis. It's not really a bell that you can unring. So what do you think is a safe or maybe a, a meet in the middle sort of, of a route for being able to kind of look at these larger data sets and be able to actually, you know, do the science to develop a potentially really impactful tool. Like I'll use an example just to kind of make this more explicit. Some of the tests that are being brought to market for earlier cancer detection, you know, being able to non-invasively detect cancer from simple blood draws. Some of these trial cohorts are hundreds of thousands of people. How do you think about, you know, what's important for these people that are setting up these clinical trials? What are some things that they should keep in mind about, you know, the human psychology and the behavior that underlies some of what you're talking about? Yeah, obviously, it's a very delicate question. And it comes down to what are the risks that we as a society are prepared to take? Right. I generally think of it as there's different sort of levels of impact, right? There's a individual impact right? Like what risk affect you and, and only you and what risk you as an individual are you willing to take, which will evolve depending on, you know, say, you know, taking the example of cancer, you know, your stage two, three versus four beyond, like you probably are willing to take different kinds of risks, right? So trying to define this a little bit, but at the individual level, then there are risks at the corporate level, what are the risks that some of these very large, you know, pharma or biotech companies are willing, able to take within, you know, the industry, within the, the regulation that they're subject to? And, you know, sometimes they take too much risk, sometimes not enough. So really sort of rethinking this and maybe it's at a you know, industry consortium level when a new technology emerges like 5G and so on, there's lots of discussions, like what should 5G be? What should it define? I don't know that necessarily, you know, uh, Pfizer and Novartis and so on uh, have this kind of discussions. And then lastly, there's a sort of a government level risk, which is what are we as an entire society willing to do? And that's more maybe like in the realm of ethics. So it's very polarizing right now in our society. But we don't necessarily have a lot of debate around it. We don't necessarily take a nuanced approach. We're sort of very black and white about it, which then leads to scandals, escalation, and it slows innovation as opposed to sort of gradually defining at these different levels of risks, what can we and what are we not prepared to do? Right. So... Speaking of Pfizer and maybe changing gears a little bit, you know, this year has been exceptional in many different ways. And I think two things that I'd like to talk about, you know, over the course of 2020 is like, one, what has surprised you in terms of the weaknesses of our healthcare infrastructure in the U.S. that this event, this pandemic has exposed? And then I'll follow up by asking, you know, what's really surprised you on the good side in terms of how we've responded to it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll definitely say, you know, on, on the good side, it's been incredible, the speed at which we've come up with vaccines, right, across the board. And there's something there to say about R&D, our talent, the capacity of these amazing corporations to, to get something out really quickly. And I mean, with great reliability so far, I'm sure we'll have some bad surprises along the way, but 
But that's like phenomenal in terms of speed of a, a vaccine, a path to vaccine. Where things have been maybe disappointing, you know, when you think about our hospital capacity, it seems like we've been just so reactive, so slow. And partly that's due to what you alluded to earlier, which is the, the way our cost structure is designed. The cost structure of our healthcare system, four or five times higher than what it is in Europe. You go to, I'll give you a very simple example. You go to a dentist in Europe, in most European countries. You know, you go to the address, you ring the bell, the dentist opens the door. Maybe there's an assistant there, but often it's the dentist like, hey, welcome. How are you doing? Look at your teeth. Okay, you're doing fine. Boom, get out like 30 euros, right? $40, five minutes. You go to the same experience in the United States. You get in, you first fill out all your insurance information with a clerk who calls the insurance to verify that you're indeed still covered. <laughs> That's one person. Then you go into a waiting room where a nurse is going to start taking your x-rays. That's the second person. Then you go into the dental office where somebody's going to do like your teeth cleaning, what have you. That's a, your third person. And then finally, the dentist is arriving. <laughs> and you know does whatever he needs to do so just you just count that right like that's sort of the cost structure for the same issue a lot more complication a lot more layers and frankly an outcome that's very comparable hospitals experience is very similar so our ability to respond when you see that level of bureaucracy that level of kind of complexity obviously it's going to be much slower and, and that's going to disappoint. So being more nimble, I think, could help. There are lots of reasons why it is set up this way, right? Like there's lots of risks of lawsuits and things like that. So these are things that may need to evolve as we consumerize our healthcare system as well. So, yeah, I mean, maybe on that last point, right? Like regardless of what things have gone really well or, or worse than we expected, I, I think from my perspective, at least, it's been really interesting to see how many people have actually engaged with the breakneck pace of innovation and science throughout this whole year. I mean, there were literally like CNN snippets about people debating and discussing the difference between relative versus absolute benefit. And like people's vocabularies are expanding and they're I mean, I even had a discussion the other day with someone saying, should I take the Moderna vaccine or the Pfizer vaccine? Like that level of choice is also, it at least seems like it's a pretty new phenomenon. So I'm wondering, is this sort of like a catalyst maybe after the pandemic begins to abate a little bit where, you know, and we can take it back to the main line here, but just does that in a way alter the trajectory with which we've consumerized or we have choice or it becomes important to appeal to to people and not just doctors or physicians but everybody kind of in the in the system that's a really interesting question which i would put you know in terms of thinking about the risks right is healthcare falling into like individual decisions right which is what you're referring to like are there people who are going to want one kind of vaccine versus an, another as opposed to a societal decision, like our doctor is going to prescribe, you know, one vaccine over another. The risk I see is individual decisions are often motivated by, you know, when you talk to uh, populations at risk, maybe financial considerations. 
I don't have a lot of money. I'm going to get paid for trials. Uh, I'm going to take more risks than I really should, but I have a you know very short term versus long term incentive to do that. Or you know maybe I'm not going to take the vaccine because I'm anti-vaccination, and therefore I'm going to put the you know the rest of society at risk. So when it comes to you know things like COVID and diseases that have this high rate of transmission, maybe I lean more towards like let society regulate because it's safer for all of us. When it comes to personal choices like, you know, wellness and addiction, maybe that's more like of an individual's decision. So, but then on the other hand, I say that, but, you know, wellness, is this a personal decision or is this a societal decision when one third of the population is overweight and it costs society so much, right? I think having these discussions in the light of what we learned from COVID in terms of the limitation of our healthcare system, the capacity of the ICU and so on, maybe that will shed a different light and will help us revisit what risk falls into what category. Got it, okay, that makes sense. And then what are you thinking about in terms of, I know we've talked about this a little bit in terms of looking at personalized or kind of in of one healthcare outcomes where we, we tailor a lot of information. You know, you mentioned a lot of phenotypic information having to do with your physical characteristics and marrying that together with information from genomics and, and technology broadly and kind of putting those things together. And one of the concerns that I've had, and I, I'm wondering if you have any opinions on this moving forward, is we've kind of used this basket approach when we look at measuring the healthcare outcomes for different things. And we try to standardize across groups. And I, I think as we've learned more, we've understood that, oh, people react differently. And maybe it has to do with some of their comorbidities. Like you mentioned, roughly like a third of, of people might kind of fit into that that bucket of, of, of you know, having some of those chronic diseases. So if we're working towards more personalization, how can we sort of measure the effect that it has or the benefit that it has on the individual level versus the bigger group? Does that make sense? Like how you can kind of delineate those two things? Yes, absolutely. If I understand you correctly, you're saying, well, right now we have sort of a securitization of, of health risk, right, with, with our insurance system. And do we want to stick with that or completely personalize our health insurance based on individual profile? Is that correct? Yeah, it's like, and I think maybe like one example that we've, we've talked about, like diabetes management, I think is a good one to talk about. And, uh, you know, this has been a really exciting space this year with the combination of Livongo and Teladoc. I think a lot of people are really interested to see how those two companies coming together and their technology can be applied to managing diseases like diabetes. But when you start to work on almost like this individualistic level of how to manage this person's specific case, how can we benchmark success in that type of environment? Yes. So that's a really interesting question, which comes down to, again, you know, individual versus company versus society risk, right? When you look at diabetes, one type of diabetes is within your control. One isn't, right? It's genetic. So risks that are within an individual control, maybe it makes sense to have the individual bear the responsibility of the risk that they might be taking if they become you know diabetic but risks that are you know genetic that an individual cannot do anything about it might be that then it's just taken care of by society on behalf of of all of us right because we all want to have 
the society where people feel safe. So I would say the barrier there, maybe the trust building line in the sand is what's in your an individual's control versus what isn't. And what isn't, we syndicate. And what is, we personalize. Got it. And I'm not sure if this is part of the original analogy, which I really like the one that you used about the mind and the body and, and thinking about products under, under that kind of humanistic angle. What do you think about some of the underlying, say, psychology when it comes to how consumers interact with healthcare products? Like, I'll give an example that I've thought about. So, like, if you're doing a diagnostic test on some level, you know, the best outcome you can get is a neutral one. You're healthy, you expect to be healthy, and you're confirmed healthy. But you still know that the test isn't perfect and there's some possibility for an incorrect result. So that little tinge of anxiety isn't totally gone. Or you could be getting the worst news of your life, you know, potentially. How does that psychology play a part in designing products in the life sciences moving forward? Yes. You know, the way I think about it is the same way I think about placebo, right? I'm taking a pill. Is it because I'm sick or is it because I'm part of the placebo, the control group? Is my behavior going to be different because I'm taking a pill versus if I don't take a pill whatsoever? What we see, and this is true across the board, is that people get used to situation, right? So when I first start taking a pill, I'll pay more attention than after I've taken the pill for like three months. But then if I stop taking the pill, I'll be like, ooh, I better be careful so I don't get back on the pill, right? And so just like with everything, right, it's all about how you keep your audience engaged. And it means changing the formula regularly. So that's why you see like, you know, vitamin companies, like they just come up with new products all the time. Well, that's how they keep their customers engaged, right? Like you use the red pill, you use the green pill, no pun intended with the matrix or what have you, but changing behavior comes from keeping your customers engaged. And I think that a lot of these healthcare biotech companies, they have this sort of one size fits all or forever type of recipes. Mixing things up might make them more efficient just because it's human nature to want to change things. I wanted to close the loop on, you know, I know you're really involved in education and I, I'm curious to learn more about things that you've taken, whether it's from Mighty Capital or Products That Count or your continued kind of interest and exposure in the life science space. How does that all get bottled up and translated to the next wave of entrepreneurs? So one of the biggest adjustments for me and, and I think for all operators turned investor from you know becoming an investor is recognizing that even though you know I have my own perspective on innovation and where the next big thing is going to come, by the mere fact that I'm an investor as opposed to an entrepreneur at this point in my life, I'm actually not the one who's going to you know make innovation happen. And so having this constant channel to listen to products that count where we hear from the, the brightest mind, like what is the next best product? I think it keeps me honest, humble <laughs> and fresh that, you know, I'm not going to be like, we're, you know, Mighty Capital isn't thesis driven. We're not saying like, this is where innovation is going to come. We're saying we're going to go where we add value with products that count. And that keeps us in a listening mode of like where the best product minds are is where we're going to be adding the most value. So if anything, that's sort of my philosophy on it. 
And so the last thing I wanted to ask about is I'm sure, you know, especially if any of our listeners are kind of in the product management space or entrepreneurs, and especially, you know, hearing about how you've kind of flipped the VC model with Mighty Capital and and really focused in on the support and the collaboration angle. For anyone that does want to delve in a little bit more to that or read your book, Mobilize, what is the best way for them to get connected? Yeah, so products that count, we have, you know, thousands of resources, video, podcast, articles, whether you're you're a visual learner, you like reading stuff, all of that content is authored by C-level, VP-level in products. So going to our website is probably the first step, productsthatcount.com. You can become a member. It's totally free. And you'll start getting a newsletter invitation to some of our webinars and such. So that's what I would say. And then if you have any question for me, I'm really easy to find anywhere on the webosphere, but you can also email me sc at productsthatcount.com. Perfect. Okay. Well, thank you again for all the time you spent today. I, I really appreciated it. And I'm sure people will be reaching out and hopefully getting a chance to read and follow you online. So appreciate the time again. Thanks for having me. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.